True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. A young girl leaves her home to perform one of the most basic tasks of most people's day. She just needs to use the loo. During the day, it's no problem. Kailitsha hums with the chatter of her neighbours. The sunlight provides a safe space to move around. But at night, this mission is suddenly a dangerous one. Lighting is poor. Her neighbours have shut their doors. It's just her and the darkness. But she's not alone, and she will never make this trip again. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and you're listening to episode 58, The Murder of Sinonolo Mafuveka. This episode is sponsored by Print Crowd. As the gig economy starts to take hold, and more people create their own streams of income. One thing that is always a necessity for businesses of any size is printed material. Business cards, pamphlets, stickers, and so much more can become a nightmare of quote comparison, back and forth on artwork, and finding a trusted supplier. Enter Print Crowd. Print Crowd is your partner in printing. Get an instant quote on their website upload your artwork, pay online and track your order until it arrives at your door. Print Crowd puts you in charge of your project by providing excellent customer service and keeping you up to date every step of the way with their state-of-the-art software and technology. Using the best machines, specifically designed for your unique needs, Print Crowd guarantees the highest standard and quality every time. Today, Print Crowd is offering True Crime South Africa listeners 10% off their order and an opportunity to support the show by using the code TCSA10 at checkout. That's TCSA10 at checkout for 10% off all your printed material requirements from the comfort of your home. A huge thank you to Print Crowd for supporting True Crime South Africa. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our new Patreon supporters. A huge thank you goes out to Jeannie Melissa Muleba, Tamarin Leopolis, Chuck and Sian Folskenk for their support on Patreon. Thank you so much everyone. Your support really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave a link in the show notes. There are now additional ways that you can support the show with two online businesses providing 10% discounts when you use the code TCSA10. You can get your health and beauty needs at King Online and you can get all your printing requirements designed, printed and delivered by Print Crowd. You can also help to support me as an individual creator by checking out the companion podcast I created with Showmax for the Devil's Dorp documentary, or by purchasing the Krugersdorp Cult Killings audiobook, which I narrated, on Audible, Google Play Books, or Apple Books. As always, any form of support is greatly appreciated, and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen, and interacting on social media all go a long way to keeping the show growing and improving. Today's episode is heartbreaking for many reasons. It not only highlights some of the deep inequities in our society, but it also brings to the forefront the danger that South African women face on a daily basis. The dynamics of this case are also replicated across the world in impoverished communities. So really, no matter where you are in the world, the murder of Sinonolo Mafevuka will no doubt match up closely 
with many that may have happened in communities around you. Sadly, you probably don't know about these cases, because there's a very good chance they never made headlines. Sinon Lolo's case did make headlines, but as we will discuss, it may not have been for the reasons we suspect. In researching this episode, I used several online media sources and blogs, which I will reference when we get there. So let's get into episode 58, The Murder of Sinon Lolo Mafevuka. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counselling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Sinungolo Mafevuka is 19 years old when we enter her story. While I would usually paint a picture of a victim's life before they encountered the violent crime that brings their name to our attention, sadly in this case, this is the point at which we start. And perhaps that is the first atrocity in this case. No one thought to ask who Sinongolo was before she was murdered, so no information exists in the public domain. We do know that Sinongolo lived with her family in an area of Kailicha, referred to as Town 2. Several members of the Mafevuka household lived on the same premises. They occupied one structure for eating and visiting, and another structure for sleeping. The township of Kailicha falls within the auspices of the city of Cape Town. The name is Koza for a new home. Kailicha was established as a result of the Group Areas Act under apartheid rule. The Act imposed segregation along race lines in residential areas. The township was originally planned to hold 200,000 people. The last official population count in the area indicated that close to 2.4 million people now occupy Kailicha. The area is one of the poorest in Cape Town, with the average household income being less than 20,000 rand per year. Around 70% of residents live in completely informal structures, and one in three residents must walk 200 metres or more to gain access to water and sanitation. Crime in Kailicha is seriously problematic. According to the SAPS statistics for 2019-2020, it is the area with the second highest number of murders in the country. 251 cases of murder were reported in Kailicha in the reporting year 2019-2020. to That is just short of one murder per day. There were also 146 attempted murder cases reported during this period, meaning that an attempt at murder does happen more than once a day in Kailicha, but some victims are saved. Kailicha is second in this dubious murder ranking, only to Delft, which is a notorious gang area, also in the Western Cape. Harare, an area of Kailicha close to Town 2, in which Sinongolo lived, makes its own appearance in SAPS statistics under the number of reported rapes for 2019-2020. In that period, 168 rape reports were taken. Human rights organisations estimate that only one in nine rapes are reported in South Africa, so it is very possible that more than 1,512 people were raped in Kailicha in the reporting period. Despite the difficulties that life presented on a daily basis, Sinungolo was happy and cheerful. She was dating a young man from the area, and some would say that there were possible wedding bells in her future. On the evening of the 1st of March 2016, Sinungolo was preparing dinner with her brother and his wife in the Mafavuka home in Town 2. 
around 7 p.m., she told family that she was going to the toilet. For Sino Ngolo, using the toilet meant walking 200 meters to a block of communal porta potty type toilets. Water and sanitation services to Kailicha are limited, and it has been a long-held dispute with the local municipality that there are simply not enough ablution facilities for residents. Many residents of the township do not leave their homes after dark and instead use buckets for their ablutions inside their home, which they empty and clean out in the morning. While this may be an option for smaller families or single people, in a home like the Mafevukas, where there were many members living in a confined area, this option would have been very difficult. Sinonolo's brother, Lolwabo, says that the last time he saw his sister, she was leaving their home with a roll of toilet paper in her hand. She left her cell phone behind in the home. When Sinonolo did not return that evening, Lolwabo says he was not really concerned. It was not uncommon for Sinonolo to sleep over at her boyfriend's home, which was nearby, and he assumed that this is what she decided to do. The family ate dinner and then locked the door to their home, settling in for a night's rest. On the morning of the 2nd of March 2016, a neighbour of the Mafuevukas, Yongama Mdea, headed off to school. As he passed the communal block of toilets, he noticed one door standing open. It was a toilet that no one used because the cistern was leaking and the floor and seats of the toilet were often wet. Then something inside the toilet caught his eye. In horror, he realised that there was a naked woman slumped over the toilet. The woman's head was inside the toilet bowl and she was motionless. Medea let out a cry for help and nearby residents started to gather. By the time the first responding officer, Constable Hobodo, arrived at the scene, a crowd had formed around the toilet. At 8am, Hobodo cordoned off the scene and pushed the crowd back, warning those present not to contaminate the scene. She called for additional officers, an ambulance and detectives. Although paramedics would confirm that the young woman in the toilet was in fact deceased, Robodo was able to tell from the positioning of her body that the victim had been there for at least a few hours before being discovered. The scene was a forensic nightmare. Items of clothing had been shoved into the toilet cistern, causing the already leaking toilet to expel even more water. The victim's body was wet, as was everything around her. Inside the cubicle, on the floor, scattered around the victim, were several items of clothing, as well as a hat and a pair of sunglasses. These items were collected as evidence, and police began to scout the area in an effort to identify the female victim. Just an hour later, Sinon Lolo's brother received a call from his wife. She was hysterical. The body in the toilet had been identified as his sister. At some point after leaving her home at 7pm the previous night, Sinonolo had crossed paths with the murderer. Her clothes had been ripped from her body and she had been raped. Then she had been strangled to death. Her murderer had attempted to force her body into the toilet and when they were unsuccessful, they had dropped the lid on her head and left her there. Strangely, a jersey had been draped over Sinonolo's waist. It did not cover any part of her, so it seemed as though it may have just fallen there or been tossed there without thought. Police collected a pair of sunglasses, two t-shirts, a hat, a bra and a pair of panties from the cubicle. Sinon Lolo's rape and murder devastated her family. 
but if they thought that their pain would be isolated to the moment of her loss alone, they would be sadly mistaken. For days, the investigation crept at a snail's pace. Policing in Kailitsha is not easy. There are an average of 878 citizens to each police officer. Resources are scarce. By most accounts, since 2014, things have become better on the policing front in Kailitsha, at least from a systems and processes perspective. Before that, police stations in the area were labelled dysfunctional. For the residents of the township, though, not enough had changed, and this was becoming clearly evident in the investigation into Sinonolo's murder. In all fairness, there was very little to go on. Police were able to find one surviving piece of male DNA on the jersey that was draped over Sinonolo's body. A fingerprint was also recovered from her skin. Now they just needed someone to compare it to. Normal procedure in this investigation would be to start with those closest to the victim and work out to friends, then acquaintances. In conjunction with that, neighbours would be interviewed about what they'd heard or seen around the time that Sinonolo was believed to have gone missing. While police may have been doing all they could to find Sinonolo's murderer at that point, there was very little awareness in the media about her case. In fact, the first article I could find on any national news platform about Sinonolo's murder was on the 9th of March, a full seven days after her body was discovered. And, to be fair, something equally tragic that happened on the 7th of March may have been the only reason her murder ever made the news. On the 7th of March, just half an hour's drive from where Sinonolo took her last breath, but in a place that may as well have been a different world, a 16-year-old girl went jogging through Tukai Forest while her mother collected her little sister from the bus stop. The body of Franziska Blochlecher was found that afternoon. She had been raped and murdered. The news exploded. Within hours of the horrific discovery, articles were already being sent to editors for approval and mobile phones across the country pinged with news app notifications, and the notifications and articles would not stop coming. The Tukai community were understandably enraged, and descended on the forest, conducting their own searches for evidence or perpetrators. A 50,000 rand reward was offered. A private investigator was hired to assist police. The perpetrators of Francisca's murder had taken her iPhone, and using it and other investigative tools, Tukai police were able to start making arrests within less than 48 hours of her murder. On the 9th of March, an article was published announcing arrests. Tukai and much of the country heaved a sigh of relief, but in Kailitsha, the Mafevuka family was disturbed. Although grateful that another family had some answers so soon, why was it that seven days after their own daughter's rape and murder, no one had even uttered her name? Kailitsha community members started to question this too. Around the same time that Franziska Blochlecher's murderers and rapists were being handcuffed and led to police vehicles, in Kailitsha, the Deputy Minister of Police at the time, Maggie Sochu, stormed into a meeting at Kailitsha Police Station and demanded, in full view of members of the media, to know why Sinonolo's case was floundering. While that anger is completely understandable, and I'm certainly not going to get into the politics of the situation, it was a bit ironic that the person demanding answers was also one of the very people responsible, at least by virtue of her position at the time, 
for the lack of resources at Kailiche police station. This aside, Sochu's explosion in front of the media does appear to have caused them to sit up and take notice, as it is at this point that articles start to regularly appear about Sinongolo's case in the media. Now, I would like to make it very clear that I am in no way saying that Franziska Blochlecher's case was given undue attention. Her case was given exactly the attention it deserved. But it stands in stark contrast to the murder of a girl who was just three years older than her, but happened to live in a different area. Franziska Blochlecher's murder was horrific and senseless. Sinongolo Mavevuka's murder was horrific and senseless. Full stop. In the ensuing days, a man came forward, and he would become a vital witness. The man had been returning from a local tavern on the evening of the 1st of March. He says it was around midnight, and he heard a woman screaming. He then saw two men dragging a woman toward the toilets. He said he was afraid that the men would see him, so he hid between some houses until he could no longer see or hear them. The man said he recognised the men from the neighbourhood, but could only identify them by their street nicknames. He knew they lived in the surrounding area, but couldn't say exactly where. So police, armed with two nicknames and an eyewitness account, started working their sources for information. Police also questioned the young man who had first discovered Sinongolo's body on his way to school. He added that he'd walked to a nearby petrol station the night before to buy prepaid electricity, and he'd seen a group of about seven people standing around the toilet area. Significantly, he mentioned that he'd been unable to identify any of the people because the area was poorly lit. The bra and panties in the cubicle, although presumed to belong to Sinongolo, could not be specifically linked to her, as the DNA had been compromised by the wet conditions in the toilet. Her family was not able to identify those items. The jersey that had been draped over her was identified by Sinongolo's brother as belonging to her but his wife said that she had never seen it. On the 10th of March, Sinongolo's cousin, Dan Matlatla, said that the family felt like the visits they'd recently received from high-ranking police officials had only come because the media was starting to focus on the case. Matlala told reporters that the family was heartbroken over the loss of Sinongolo, who he described as the most beautiful soul. For several days, police pushed informants in the area for information to match the street names that the eyewitness had provided to actual identities. And then, two weeks after Sinongolo's murder, two arrests were made. After their first appearance in court, the identities of the alleged perpetrators were made public, and their connection to Sinongolo became clear. 21-year-old Ngolisa and 26-year-old Atebile Mafelika were cousins of Sinongolo's boyfriend, who had only been identified as Viwe. Her boyfriend had been cleared of any direct involvement in the case early on with a rock-solid alibi. His cousins, though, were allegedly well-known in the community for all the wrong reasons, and the eyewitness, who claimed to have seen the two men dragging a woman into the toilets that night, confirmed that these were the two men he had seen. In a statement read by the state prosecutor at the initial court appearance, the alleged motive was revealed. The state claimed that Sinongolo's boyfriend had suspected that she'd been with another man on the Saturday before her murder. According to prosecutors, Ngolisa and Atabile had sought revenge on behalf of Viwe, 
and this had been the reason for the attack. The community was baying for blood. Protests were held outside the court when the accused initially appeared and when they applied for bail. The cousins were initially represented by a private defence attorney, but would later no longer be able to afford his services and were given legal aid lawyers to defend them. Petitions were signed by community members who did not want the two men to be released on bail. The bail proceedings were heard in the magistrate's court, where the state argued that the defendants would be in danger if they were released into the community, as threats of vigilante justice had been received. The two petitions were also presented during the bail hearing. The magistrates would deny bail to Ngolisa and Atabile, stating that the petitions from the community had played a major role in his decision. It would be during this bail hearing, though, that doubt would first be cast on the strength of the state's case. The cousin's defence attorney asked how it was possible for the eyewitness to have seen the faces of the two men dragging the female that night, if he claimed to have seen this at midnight, when the young man that had walked past the cubicles much earlier in the night said that he could not make out faces due to poor light. He also cast doubt on the man's testimony, claiming that he was drunk, as he had admitted to have been returning from a tavern when the events unfolded. As the two accused men awaited trial, it began to emerge that witnesses were claiming to receive threats to their lives. One witness was rushed to Tigerberg Hospital after having been stabbed. He alleged that his attacker was a member of the defendant's family. Another witness, who would be testifying to a conversation he'd overheard between the defendants, fled to the Eastern Cape after receiving threats. As the start of the trial loomed, the state's case was looking questionable. Through many promises of protection and pleading, the state was able to secure its most important witnesses before the trial commenced in October of 2016. The bombshells against the state's case did not stop falling, though. When the pathologist testified, it became clear that the time of Sinonolo's death had not been determined. While this is not uncommon, it was a major issue in the context of the rest of the evidence. The testimony of the eyewitness was already being questioned. He insisted that there was sufficient light that night to see the faces of the two men. He also said that he had known the defendants for many years and could identify them from a distance. But he claimed to have seen them dragging the woman at midnight on the 1st of March, and Sinonolo had left her house at 7pm. So where had she been for five hours, if that had indeed been her that was dragged into the toilets? The time of death also became important when the defendants presented their alibis. Atibile Mafilika's girlfriend was his alibi. She initially did not arrive to testify, and when she eventually did appear in court, she claimed that she was afraid the court would not believe her. She testified that on the evening of the 1st of March, she'd watched the Soapy Generations on television. The program airs at 8pm on SABC1. She says that when that had finished, she went to Atabile's aunt's house and found him there with Ngolisa as well as two other people. They had stayed there for a while, but eventually his aunt had made them leave because they were making too much noise. She and Atabile had then gone to his house, and she did not know where Ngolisa and the others went. She says that she and Atabile slept in the same bed that night, and he did not wake up or get out of bed until daylight. She insisted that she would have woken up if her boyfriend had gotten out of bed, as she was a light sleeper. The woman said that Sinonolo was a friend of hers, 
and they had often gone out together. She had gone out with her on the Saturday before her death. Unfortunately, there are no court records available online for this case, but the mention of that Saturday before her death is interesting to me, and I'd like to know whether she was asked about the accusation of Sinongolo having been unfaithful to her boyfriend on that night. If she had been with the girl and had knowledge of this happening, this would make sense as to how the defendants had come upon this information. Police were in possession of the name of the man that Sinongolo was alleged to have been with that Saturday night, but they were unable to locate him. Residents had claimed that he had fled after hearing that his tryst with Sinongolo was alleged to be the reason for her murder. The reason that Sinongolo's time of death would have been so important in this instance is that if she went to the toilet at 7pm, that would still provide a two-hour gap between when she was last seen and when Atabile's girlfriend is first able to provide an alibi for her boyfriend at 9pm. But that time period would completely contradict the eyewitness statement of an event occurring at midnight. Molisa Mafilika did not have a solid alibi. He simply said that he was sleeping during the hours of the murder. He did, however, flounder on whether he had attended work on the day of and the day after the murder. Initially, he said that he was at work on the 1st and 2nd of March, but police investigators determined that he was not. Although human testimonies can be questioned, physical evidence is irrefutable. But sadly, it came to light during the trial that there was very little of that either. It was revealed that the small amount of DNA found on the jersey draped over Sinongolo, as well as the single fingerprint recovered from her naked body, did not match either defendant. None of the other items found in the cubicle could be conclusively linked with either man. And then the investigation itself came into question, when the investigating officer took the stand. The investigating officer admitted that he had not filed his interview notes after interviewing the two accused, as is procedure. He contradicted himself in his testimony, had misplaced the notebook he used to record vital details of the investigation, and could not remember reading the accused their rights. It also emerged that the investigating officer had been replaced halfway through the case. Both Atebile and Ngolisa would also allege that they had been physically assaulted by police while they were being interviewed. The men claimed that they had been struck on the legs and had plastic bags placed over their heads while they were handcuffed. Police strongly denied that this ever happened. It would be alleged in testimony that the arrests of the cousins had caused a rift in the Mafiliki family. Some members of the family believed that the young men were guilty because of statements they'd made. Other members of the family stood by the men. The aunt whose house they had initially been at on the night of the murders was called by the defence to verify their whereabouts in the early hours of the time frame in question, but after allegations that the woman was threatening witnesses, the defence suddenly told the court they no longer needed to call her. The states tried to insist that she be called, saying that she could have vital information, but the defence refused and the judge did not intervene. Having the aunt on the stand, of course, would open her up to cross-examination by the state, and she would have to truthfully answer whether she had indeed been intimidating witnesses. The trial stretched out for months, and well into 2017, but Sinun family attended every single day of the trial. 
the defendants appeared relaxed and confident for the most part, even when they had to let their paid private defence attorney go and take on new legal aid counsel, which delayed proceedings further. An in locum inspection of the area in which Sinongolo's body had been found was conducted during the trial. The defendants were transported to the area in handcuffs and leg chains, and the splits in the community over their guilt became clear. On one side, a large crowd of protesters formed, vowing to make the pair pay if they ever set foot in Kailitsha again. On the other side, a woman asked if she could give one of the defendants a kiss, and a man arrived with a jug of water and glasses for the cousins to drink from. The in locum inspection brought little verification either way. The toilets had been moved slightly since Sinolo's murder, and new dwellings had sprung up in the area. During the inspection, it was noted that there were two tall lighting posts near the area. One was 130 metres away, and the other 150 metres away. It was alleged during testimony that the two defendants had been heard telling Viwe what they had done to his girlfriend. They were also allegedly overheard talking about a heavy object they had to get rid of on the night of the murder. It would also be revealed that the cousins had been accused by the community of two other sexual assaults, but no charges were laid in these cases. On Monday the 18th of December 2017, Judge Taswell Papir handed down his judgments in the case. He found both accused not guilty of all charges against them. On hearing this judgment, the courtroom erupted. Sinonolo's mother let out a wail, and it took some time for the judge to be heard again. He said that although he was sympathetic toward the family of the victim, he had to apply the law fairly, and he did not feel that the state had proven guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. A social justice activism organisation that had stood by the family throughout the trial spoke to reporters after the two men were found not guilty. Representative of the SJC, Chumele Sali, told the media, quote, It is clear from the reasons furnished that the detective services in the South African Police Service failed in their duty to secure credible evidence to secure a conviction and ultimately justice for Sinonolo and her family. The first investigating officer assigned to the case failed in his duties in numerous ways. Despite being replaced as the investigating officer after pressure from the SJC, the public and unfavourable reporting in the media, the damage had been done. Credible evidence had been lost and poor records had been kept. In addition, two young men, now found to be not guilty, have served 20 months behind bars. This is a tragic outcome that can only contribute to a further undermining of trust between the police service and the members of the community. End quote. The organisation acknowledged that it was entirely likely that justice would now never be served for Sinongolo. The murder of Sinongolo Mafevuka would become a centre point for discussions around sanitation, visible policing and service delivery. And although these are all very important points and certainly contributed to Sinongolo's murder, I would not allow those points to detract from the responsibility of the person or persons who did this. If Sinongolo did not have to leave her home to use the toilet that night, she may not have been murdered at that time. But if, indeed, her murder was as the result of some revenge plot, she may well have been taken at some other point. The core of this case is the same as many other gender-based violence cases, 
a woman is raped and murdered because her killer believed it to be their right. And certainly, that should be the focus. But the other issues around the case cannot be ignored either. Would Sinongolo still be alive if she lived anywhere other than Kailicha? Would her case have been solved if she'd been murdered in Tsukai? Why did it take the murder of another girl for Sinongolo's case to make it into the media? While it is entirely possible for a case to be built around circumstantial evidence alone, physical evidence placing perpetrators at a crime scene is always important. In the absence of that, irrefutable eyewitness testimony is helpful, but in this case, sadly, the testimony was not irrefutable. I don't think that the eyewitness that saw a woman being dragged, screaming towards the toilets, was lying but his evidence could not hold up to scrutiny because of the circumstances around it. In the months after Sinon Lolo's murder, organisations and activists would attempt to produce positive change from her loss. Activist Kerry Nelson accompanied the Mafevuka family to court each day, and she set up a Facebook group called Sinon Lolo, We Have Peace. This is the meaning of Sinonolo's name, and the group is aimed at creating awareness around gender-based violence murders, particularly in the Kailicha area. I spoke to activist Kerry Nelson about her experiences around Sinonolo's case. My name's Kerry, and I'm not actually part of any movement per se. I did start the Zoom as Fall movement. And then, obviously, like the one we're speaking about today, what happened to Sinfolo. I'm just your normal, average, single mom and just trying to do my part to better our country. What happened with Sinfolo um, is I saw um, an article. I can't remember which online newspaper outlet it was, but I saw this tiny little, this tiny little piece on, you know, girl gets raped, murdered in Kailiche. It had just happened around the same time as Francesco and everybody remembers. Oh, it still gives me goosebumps that time. Yeah, uh, it was, sorry, it still actually makes me quite emotional. Obviously the, the community was up in arms with um, Francesca and what, what happened to her because, you know, that kind of thing doesn't happen in affluent areas. It just, you know, it was this girl that was going for her run and her run ended. So, uh, I mean, I, I don't, I, don't, I still don't have words to describe it. I suppose as a as a single woman, you know, it's when you hear these stories, it does it does hit you harder. The next day, I saw the the Sinatolo piece and I just thought, why was it so small? It was such a tiny little. It was almost like you know one of those cheap little ad spaces online and and it hit me and i thought why does this woman's life matter less as because she was murdered in kailicha you know township where you know the statistics are heinous you know little girls women elderly women are raped and murdered beaten I mean, daily. So it's it's the norm, you know. There's no more there's no more crazy factor to it. There's there's just oh well, yeah. There goes another one. Whereas Francesca, God rest her soul, uh, was in an area where that didn't happen. And as a mom, I just thought to myself, you know, reading the piece and what happened to Circle. I mean, she was raped, she was left with her head in a cistern, and for those that don't know, it's a, it's a block, it's a concrete block of toilets, if you can even call them that, next to each other. Her clothes were stuffed in there, and, and her head was stuffed in there, and 
she was left naked and dead. And I just, something came over me and I don't know what it was. I got in my car. I called the, the, the Kailicha church in Site 5. Site 5 is notorious for being the most dangerous part in Kailicha. The main reason is, is that people there live in shacks. There's no running water. There are no lights. There's nothing. I mean, it is so insanely inhumane. It is. I can't even begin to describe. It's beyond. It's beyond imagination. But I just kept thinking about that mother and what she was going through. She had obviously found out the day before. It hit the news. I thought, you know, is there anyone with her? I mean, does she have support? I mean, what is, you know. And I think what hit me most is that this mother would have to use the very toilets her daughter was found murdered in. And that, to me, was just beyond barbaric. I just got in my car and I headed there. I called the Kailicha church because I, obviously I didn't know where, where in Site 5 the mum stayed. And I got hold of a wonderful, wonderful lady by the name of Tandy. And Tandy advised me that it may be a good idea to call the police as well because I was a white woman that was going to go into a very bad area. At that time, I didn't care if there was going to be police or not. I suppose that's not wise, but I had, I just, I just didn't care. I wanted to get to this mum. But um, by the time I got to the church, Tony was there and there was a police officer and it was about two blocks from this police station. We parked, we walked down these sand, sort of these very narrow sand pathways. And then there she was, sitting on a, a makeshift couch and s surrounded by fellow um, community members. And just, I just remember her just, just, just this deep screaming of, you know, just absolute grief. It just hits, it just, yeah, it just, it's just something I'll never ever forget. And I went in and remember she, she looked at me and I don't know if she was in more shock than what I was, but I just, I just put my arms around her and I, I we both cried. And, um, and I just kept saying to her, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And... She didn't even have a photo of her daughter. She had one um, on her cell phone. And um, I remember there was one person from one of the media groups that was there. And then what I didn't want to happen, the story turned on me. And then it was all of a sudden white girl in Kylie Church, you know. That's not, not what I wanted. From that point, I decided that, you know what, something had to be done. Sinatola's life had been taken, but something still, something had to be done. The fact that she was just a little clip, you know, report, a tiny little clip, and that was it. That was, that's all her life came down to. So I love the idea that the community with Francesco, they were all raising money to catch the killers, you know, I thought that was just such a brilliant idea. So myself and my best guy friend, Cole, um, we decided, you know what, we were also going to do that. So we started the Sinatolo page and we decided to call it Sinatolo We Have Peace because that's what her name means. The online community and, I mean, from Cape Town to, because it happened in Cape Town, to Johannesburg to... Overseas, people just, it just, it just exploded. Then it got news coverage. I mean, we had from SABC to Sunday Times to you name it, 
the, the, the case became massive. It was Francesca and Sinclair, like it was, it, it was just huge. Then all of a sudden started seeing, you know, ANC in there, you know, with the ANC shirts and then the DA was suddenly in there. It actually just, that enraged me because, you know, where were they before this all happened, you know? Why does everybody only come to the party when, when we're making the news? And it just, it just, it just blew my mind. We were at the Kailiche Magistrates Court for, for each appearance. So what had happened is they caught the killers. And when I got the phone call that this, well, the alleged killers had been caught, I just couldn't believe it. I was, I was blown away. I was absolutely blown away. We went back into Kailiche Magistrates Court that day. The one was in his 20s and the other, I mean, he must have been in his early teens. The older one had a look of just hatred, absolute hatred, and the younger was terrified. I made very good friends with Silicola's brothers, the two of them, and when they saw those two for the first time, they just, I mean, everybody broke down. The family of the accused Sinatola's family, everyone was just, oh, it was, it was crazy. Unfortunately, due to the fact that this kind of thing happens on a daily basis, that women are murdered and raped on a daily basis in Kailicha and its equivalents like Nyanga and whatnot, the case was thrown at the end. Basically, I would say evidence tampering. And the reason that I say that is because the proper legal methods were not followed. I received death threats because I wanted to see the the reports. And her case was thrown and the murderers got away because the procedures were not followed. The body was washed, evidence was washed away, and murderers got away at the end of the day. Whether it was them, whether it wasn't them, not even the point. The thing is, is that no one followed procedures because it happened so often. Did they do that on the other side? Of course not. It was huge news. But because it happens every day. It's just, it, it again blew my mind. I just, and having to look at the family and having to fight so hard and so long. And it was, I mean, I mean, we were exhausted. I can't even imagine what her family felt like. It was just, it was such a slap in their faces. The justice system let them down because they didn't give a shit. That's the plain, simple reason they didn't care. Because on their clock, oh, it's normal. I looked at her mom. He didn't, she didn't speak much English. By that point, we'd got a poster printed and put up on the wall. I mean, it was, it was, wasn't the clearest or anything, but just something for her and we got their meals and, you know, that kind of thing to support them during the trial. And they didn't get justice. But what we did do in the end, so we decided to take the money that was donated by everybody and we put it all in together and we got Sinatolo's body um, and her family, her close family, all taken up to the Eastern Cape, as they were from the Eastern Cape, and we threw her a beautiful burial and a ceremony, a traditional ceremony, and and, um, got all of them up there. Well, we may not have caught the killer or killers. Everyone knew at the end who did it, but 
at least at you know at the end of the day we got to we got to send Sunakuba home and bury her in peace and um, with dignity. With the Facebook page, what we try and do is we just try and bring light to any articles that we see online, anyone in South Africa that has suffered at the hands of another um, from abuse or being a victim, we try to give them a voice. Because as much as I want to save everybody, I can't. But I believe that the more we give everybody a voice, the more we say no, the more we say it's not okay, and the more we call up our guys and tell them to man up, the more we fight the problem that we have in this country. Whether the failure to gain justice in Sinon Ngolo's case emboldened other perpetrators in the area remains to be seen. But in the December after she was murdered, another woman was murdered in Kailicha, and her body was abandoned in a communal toilet. An arrest was made just days after that woman was murdered. Sinongolo Mafevuka is a perfect example of what I call an invisible victim. These are victims that don't get headlines, and often don't get justice either. Victims become invisible when either their lifestyles, ethnicity, or the areas they live in make their murders, rapes, or disappearances unsurprising. It's a hard reality to face that we expect horrific crimes like this to happen to specific people or in specific areas, but it's true. And when that expectation exists, Victims become invisible to our outrage. Added to this is often a community's own acceptance of crimes of this nature, and this is not isolated to any one community. Every community has a level of crime that they're prepared to accept, that they don't even blink an eye at. Even in the safest of communities, Many wouldn't be surprised at a house robbery or a vehicle theft. It becomes normalized, because, well, at least you weren't physically harmed. But this phenomenon is applied to even worse crimes in some communities, simply because these violent crimes are so common. I found a blog post on a site called Dear South African Men, and I think it perfectly captured how violent crime has become normalized in some areas of South Africa. I'll link the blog article in the show notes too, and provide full credit to the blogger in question. It reads in part as follows. Quote, it is silly how such incidents in the townships have happened so much that people find it a norm for someone to be dead or raped. I remember earlier this year, I was robbed and feared to tell my parents, because it didn't matter. People get mugged. I did not even try to find out who the people were that robbed me, because I will never find out. Coming back to Sinonolo's case, people in Kailicha did not come out in full support of the incident, and even when they did, they wanted to speak politics. People are fed up with lies of the government and are slowly losing hope. I am concerned in Sinon Lolo's case that she will never find justice because the community is a problem. With the Tukai case, in less than a week, the world knew about her and three suspects were arrested. With Sinon Lolo, she was found dead on the first of this month which is just like a typical township story. The community went back to their lives after the vigil. My question is what is the community doing to protect itself from itself? I don't know how, but I know someone has the information about the incident in the community. Sinon Ngolo's mother mourns the life of her daughter. 
it is a terrible experience for the family, but the community find it as a norm. When did tragedy become so normal in our communities, and why? End quote. For many of us, it would be shocking that our child would not tell us they'd been mugged. But for the writer of that blog, people just get mugged every day. It would be like telling your parents you had eggs for breakfast. Pointless. If this is shocking to you, then consider how easily you're able to shrug off your cell phone being stolen or your car window being smashed in a break-in. For different communities, different crimes become the norm. When the petitions were put together against the release of the accused in Sinongolo's case, a group of 37 women that lived in the same area broke their silence about what they called an underground rape culture in Kailicha that was holding them hostage. One woman said, quote, The culture of rape is prevalent and has no consequence. We are victims of crime and all sorts of atrocities, and our parents are not equipped to deal with these sorts of issues. End quote. South African artist Lebo Toka created a piece to symbolize the loss of Sinongolo. In it, a woman in traditional African dress sits with her eyes closed, an expression of peace on her face. In her hands, she clutches a toilet brush. On the Rape Crisis website, I found an entry by Danielle Alhait in which she discusses her reaction to the case of Franziska Blochlicher and draws parallels to Sinonolo's case. It reads in part as follows, quote, I live less than a five-minute drive from where Franziska Blochlicher was raped and murdered. I drove past to Kai Forest on the day it happened. I saw security personnel gathered around the entrance near to where her body was found. By the following day, it was in the news. As I watched the media frenzy unfold and the reactions from the women in my family, I noticed in myself an absence of anger or distress or even empathy. In the weeks following, residents of the surrounding suburbs tied bouquets of flowers along the fence near to where it happened. I've driven past the site many times, but only recently decided to visit. I wanted to try and understand my own reaction to the news, and I thought that paying a visit might help to bring me clarity. As I walked along the fence looking at the drooping flowers, it occurred to me that the public reaction to Francisca's case was quite unique. She has not once been blamed or implicated in what happened to her. With most rape cases that receive a lot of public attention, there is often something about the victim or what the victim was doing that is offered as an explanation as to why it happened to them. The reaction to Anine Boyson's 2013 rape case is an example of this. It takes a lot to be a perfect victim, and one must be to ensure public outrage that is free of victim-blaming. The perfect victim must be white, cisgender, heterosexual, sober, not out after dark, must not be at a club, bar, party, must not be in a dodgy area, and must also not know their assailant. In light of this, I was able to understand my response. I do not trust the public's reaction, and I do not want to be a part of it. I cannot trust that there is any sincerity behind those bunches of flowers. Would they have been there if Francisca had not met all of the requirements of the perfect victim? As I drove away, I noticed a poster-sized picture of Sinonolo Mafuveka's face stuck on a tree. But the poster was torn, so most of her face was missing. And I wondered if Sinonolo's case would have received any attention at all if Francisca's had not happened 
for it to be compared to. End quote. Sinongolo became invisible on the day her life was taken, simply because of how we structure the importance of events in our society. Her family may never know for sure who took her life, and sadly, they have to live in close proximity to those that were accused and found not guilty. I don't know that any of us can begin to fathom the level of pain they have to live with. I would like to think that it is possible to draw understanding from Sinongolo's murder and move forward and do better next time. And maybe that's happened. But Sinongolo was not a movement. She was not a hashtag or a political centerpiece. She was a 19-year-old girl. She was a young woman with dreams and a family and the right to live. And her murderer or murderers are still out there. Maybe their conscience will haunt them for the rest of their lives, and maybe it won't. Maybe they'll do it again. Maybe they already have. Sinongolo may not have received the justice she deserved, but by saying her name and keeping her story alive, those responsible may be reminded of what they've done. Rest gently, Sinongolo. Thank you for listening to episode 58, The Murder of Sinongolo Mafevuka. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to the show on the platform you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. I'll be back next Friday with a Spotlight Minisode. Until then, as always, thank you for your support and I'll chat to you soon. Bye.